Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The Emmy-winning Veep, the BAFTA-winning The Thick of It, and Little Englander Alan Partridge are just some of the satirical creations of the writer, producer and director Armando Iannucci. The sharp Glaswegian greatly admires Charles Dickens, Woody Allen and The Pope, but not former UK Prime Minister, the bum-faced Southern Ponce David Cameron. His current projects include a movie about Stalin's last days. He spoke with Toby Manhart about his work and whether the New World Order is putting satirists out of a job in a session supported by South Pacific Pictures. Please note this session includes explicit language. No mai haere mai. Good evening and welcome to the Town Hall and the Auckland Writers' Festival. My name is Toby Manhire, but enough about me. <laughs> it is customary... Well, tell us more. <laughs> I do have some new material prepared for later okay. on, I think. <laughs> um, it's customary to say at the start of these events that um, we're delighted to introduce so-and-so, but on this occasion I, I actually mean it. <laughs> um, it's, 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 I'm so delighted, in fact, that the Auckland Writers' Festival, which officially begins in mid-May, as, as Anne mentioned, has been shunted two and a half weeks into the future just to host uh, this gentleman here. Um, it's a very big thrill to welcome this writer, director and producer who gave us the day today, the thick of it, Veep and an incomplete PhD thesis on religious language in Paradise Lost. <laughs> He gave us characters including Alan Partridge, uh, Malcolm Tucker, Selina Mayer, and it is rumoured invented the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. <laughs> A very, very warm welcome to Amanda Inucci. Thank you very much. It's very exciting. I was just saying backstage, I'm so used to you know, doing my shows in the UK and latterly in America that um, it's the first time I've ventured out and it's just, uh, I'm just uh, amazed so many of you came out on a Saturday night to see me. Uh, <laughs> it does remind me of the time that maybe it's my Catholic guilt. I did a, a talk uh, at the Scottish Parliament a couple of years back. They were doing like a festival of politics and they were having events like this, but about politics. And they invited, they said, do you want some guests? And I said, well, can you, can you bring my mum to it? My mum, who's now 90, lives in Glasgow, and her two sisters, one of whom is 93 and the other of whom is 88. And they sent a car over to Glasgow and drove them through to uh, Edinburgh for this talk. And my wife uh, was sitting with them, and she said afterwards that my mum was just looking round, thinking, God, this is a big hall. Do you think they'll fill it? <laughs> And, and the guy in the Scottish Parliament said, Mrs. Yunucci, we could have sold this three times over. And she, without, without a missing a beat, she said, people are paying. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so thank you very much for coming. <laughs> are you paying? <laughs> Well, they paid, they, pay, they paid less than they would have, this is a perfect segue for me, than they would have um, had it not been for the support of the sponsors, South Pacific Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Before we get into the, 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 the heart of the event, which will be um, questioning Armando Iannucci on being personally responsible for Brexit and Donald Trump, um, uh, I should just say that we will have some questions. We'll have a good chunk of time at the end for questions. 
Um, Amanda is especially excited to hear your brilliant and misunderstood sitcom ideas, uh, <laughs> as well as anything on the use of religious language in Paradise Lost, or whatever else you've got. And, and he'll be signing books, several of which he's been surprised to discover he wrote. Yes. I would mean, sign anyone else's book if you want, but uh, a couple of mine are around. And that'll be in the foyer afterwards, so do uh, head out there. Anne mentioned in her introduction the swearing, and yes. um, uh, you know, fuckety high, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you're not actually much of a swearer yourself. No, I don't. I'm not really a swearer. Um, the swearing only happened when we did the show, the thick of it, and I wanted it to sound real. And I wanted it to look like uh, what you were watching was roughly the sort of thing that must go on behind these closed doors. And if you think about it, politics is a very fast and frenetic, uh, very macho, testosterone-filled uh, environment. Uh, and when I did my research for the show, I discovered that you know people swore a lot. Um, and so I thought, well, we'll have to have swearing. But then comes the question, how do you make swearing interesting? Because it can just be the same word again and again and again. So that's where the sort of the inventive swearing came in. And it wasn't just me. We had a whole team, team of people through the night working on it. We had a <laughs> swearing uh, nerve center. Um, <laughs> And in fact, one of the writers who was particularly good at it became known, some journalists called him our swearing, uh, swearing advisor, swearing consultant. consultant yeah. and, um, and, and that label has stuck with him ever since. So he's been known as the swearing consultant. Um, and I just think it's to do with um, just trying to make things feel real. And I wouldn't advocate it for every show or every, you know, Alan Partridge doesn't really swear. Um, uh, and we didn't, you know, I, and, I, and I, I don't swear so much, really. I, ever since I think of it, I've probably sworn a bit more. Um, I've been involved in correspondences with the BBC of the amount of swearing, because there is someone at the BBC whose job it is to totalise <coughs> the swear words and do a report. I, I mean, I don't know what happens to this report or what, you know, if anyone decides on it. And, um, and we did get involved in a bit of a trade-off uh, am I allowed to swear this evening? Uh, is, that, is that all right? Um, in that we did, there was one episode where we knew someone was going to be called a cunt. And um, I got this email back saying, you know, in previous episodes, there have been 24 fucks to the minute. <laughs> if, if you can get it under 20, you can have one cunt. <laughs> And, and I, I wrote back saying, yeah, the script actually demands two cunts. And I said, that's fine if you can get it down to under 16 right. fucks a minute. Right. Yes. Which, which we did, which we did, you know. So. Now, I don't know why. Is there a machine that weighs the importance of these words? And like the denominations. I wonder how many shits you can do. Well, shits are easy. I mean, shits, everyone shits. hundred shits. Uh, you know, shits a hundred shits, at least a hundred shits, yes. Malcolm, Malcolm There must Parker. be some kind of exchange, sort of... Oh, like it fluctuates, it goes yeah, yeah, back yeah. and forth. Yeah. And different countries are yeah. different, you know, you know, anyway. I trade, I trade swear words, that's my preference. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I um, mean, on the stock exchange, that's probably what they're shouting at each other anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Malcolm Tucker is the, the swear-in-chief, yes. of course. And, yes. And, and to many will be the, the, the character they most associate with the confirmed. Yeah. And, and with you, therefore. Um, was he someone that kind of came fully formed out of your head, or was he a... Well, he was, was he developed in that lab? No, he, he, um, when I researched 
the, the show, I, 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 I spoke to civil servants, to ministers, to ex-ministers, to special advisors, and you get a sense of you know, what these people are like. And I knew that we had to have one figure who was this, I mean, in, 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 in the UK, they're called the enforcers, the, the people at 10 Downing Street who go out among the ministries and just bully the ministers into telling them what they can say, what they can't say, how much money they've got, what the policy is, when they've to change their mind, what they've not to think, and so on. And they're, uh, and they're called the enforcers, which makes them sound a bit like the dementors in, in Harry Potter. Uh, and I, I wanted a figure who kind of epitomised that more brutal world of politics that, of, of course, that the cameras don't show you on the, on the news bulletins. Um, so, so that was it. We didn't think, I, we didn't write him to be Scottish, but when we were casting the role, Peter Capaldi came along and, um, and he was absolutely perfect. And um, so once he became, once Peter was Malcolm, we knew we had this bilious Scott in amongst uh, the delicate ministries and, 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 and that's how that developed. And then it just became fun, just writing Malcolm's great tirades. And Peter always looked forward to getting his script with big, big Malcolm sh shouting fests. Um, but he would uh, rehearse them. We were shooting in this disused set of offices, and they had little glass sort of side offices. And Peter would spend all day rehearsing his lines in this glass office, kind of shouting again and again for hours, so he could sort of memorise the thing. And it was just a weird sight, just seeing this man in a suit in a glass booth, all on his own, <laughs> just through a glass pane. To the extent that we thought we've got to use that at some point. So we did write an episode where Malcolm is shouting at a minister, but everyone else is standing outside just watching him. And you can barely hear what's going on, but you can more or less work it out. And that, I mean, you said that that enforcer role was something that you were reflecting that was going on in, in, in Westminster. Yes. You've talked before about Yes Minister, which in a yes. way is sort of a, a precursor to it, Absolutely. maybe even an inspiration a bit, and talking about as though that was a kind of, a bit like a documentary, and that it was particularly funny yeah. because it was real. I mean, Yes Minister, although it was a sitcom and a very traditional looking sitcom, and there was a studio audience there, mm. I think when that came out, it felt to us like this was the first time we saw how Whitehall politics worked. And, and actually, the, the writers for Yes Minister had been given stories from insiders and based quite a few of their episodes on it. There's one episode, there's a famous episode of Yes Minister where there's a British sort of trade delegation goes to Saudi Arabia and um, there's no alcohol allowed there. So what they do is they set up a secret room at the back that's just full of booze and they've got a code system agreed. So if someone comes out and says, Minister Buckingham Palace is on the phone, that, that means there's a gin and tonic ready back there. Um, you know, Gordon would like a word, is, is a, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and they said, but that was based on a true story. That actually happened, oh. you know. So there was that um, air of authenticity about it. It was also when you watched the, the West Wing, the TV show, The West Wing, a lot of the language is kind of, uh, uh, the discussion about the policy is very obscure, but you're not actually meant to know what all those references are. You, you're just meant to feel, I'm getting the real thing here. So yeah. that's, that's what yeah. that was all about, really. Um, and then sort of leaping forwards from that, uh, 
to Veep, yes. which was you know, in the Nucci canon, a successor, I suppose. It's yeah. quite a different dynamic, isn't it? Because in, yeah. in the thick of it, and to an extent, Yes Minister, it's about the machinery around running the show, really. Yeah. And then the politician being sort of bossed about, yes. bullied almost by yes. the, the aides or the officials. Whereas in Veep, it's not quite like that. No, because it's different. I mean, American politics is completely different to British politics. In, in, in thick of it, we had, yes, it was a very low uh, status minister being told what to do. In Veep, it's the vice president of the United States. And, and suddenly, you realize in America, these offices, the presidency and the vice president, they're, they're offices of state. They're, the president is the head of state. So there's. Uh, I've got to be careful how I choose my words there. There's respect for the office, if not for the person, if you see what I mean. Um, respect for the office. Um, uh, 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 and, and so no one, you can't have a Malcolm Tucker speaking like that to the vice president. If someone spoke like that to the vice president, they would instantly be on the floor and dragged away by four security guards. Um, so there's a different dynamic. and also. You know, she is right at the heart of politics, and right, at, you know, a heartbeat away from the most powerful job in the world. So the things that she does and says, you know, have importance and have impact and have ramifications all around the world. Possibly. But sort of, sort of that. I mean, a heartbeat, a bullet away from yeah. being in the most powerful role in the world, and yet, sort of. So, near, so, so far. far away. Yes, and this was based on a fantastic book I read. Um, by uh, Robert Carroll is his name. It's a biography of Lyndon Johnson. Mm. And he, it's a fantastic work. It's not finished yet. It's in three volumes, about 1,000 pages each. And Johnson has only just become the president. So it's still a bit to go. Um, everyone's desperately praying that, because the guy's now in his late 70s, I think, they're desperately praying that he finishes it before he dies. Um, but it's a fantastic book. And, uh, Johnson, people forget, Johnson was actually a very powerful figure in the Senate. He was uh, the Senate Majority Leader while Eisenhower was, so he was a Democrat while Eisenhower, Republican, was president. And Senate Majority Leader, who was able to just force legislation through, uh, and he did a lot of arm twisting, and you know, he physically, he was a big guy, and he would grab senators you know, in the bathroom and kind of hug them and then threaten them and poke them, and it was a real mobster kind of like thing about it. But he was a powerful, powerful man. And then he was asked to become vice president. And suddenly he becomes the least powerful man in Washington because he's like so near and yet so far. And he was literally sitting in his office just tapping the desk, just you know, wondering what would happen, find out that events were happening that he hadn't been invited to. And I, I, when we were researching Veep, you know, we spoke to um, uh, Al Gore and, and, and Joe Biden's chiefs of staff, and they were saying, yeah, America is it's all about number one in America. And if you're a vice president, you might as well be wandering around with a big badge saying, I came second, <laughs> you know. And, and he said, you know, vice presidents, they come into the room and everyone is very respectful to them, but they know when they leave the room, people are laughing about them. And you've just got to accept that. And that's what happened to Lyndon Johnson. But he agreed to be vice president because he'd worked out that he was, never going to be, he was never going to win the party nomination himself. He tried, he lost to Kennedy, he, he was getting a, a bit old. He knew it was never going to happen. Mm. And he said he worked out, he just looked at history and he said one in four vice presidents 
become president. That's my best chance. <laughs> and the rest, they say, is history. <laughs> yeah. So there is that thing, it's access is so near and yet so far, and yet so near, yeah, yeah. and yet so far, and yet so near. <laughs> you know. And then, but you made the decision to make it, to, she to make it happen. One of those. She becomes, in the third season, the, the, the actual president resigns, so she becomes president, but she's actually running for election herself. So she is president while the election itself is only three months away. Yeah. So if she loses the election, she will become the... She goes the, directly to lame duck almost, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah. Yeah. So that's... And, I, and, and I think that's to do with trying to give each season a fresh twist and a fresh... Take it somewhere new. But it's interesting. I was trying to. I was discussing with someone the other day about the the thick of it dynamic versus the the Veep one. In a way, the yeah. Veep one is harder to get your finger on. And I mean, it sort of it works so well, and yet it's not as clear. I mean, in, in thick of it, it's kind of you can explain in a sentence how. Yeah. And I don't, why why is that? Is that because of the complexity? I mean, is well, that Julia Louis Dreyfus that does that, or is there? No, a, I mean Washington politics is more complex as uh, um, as Donald Trump is finding out. It's actually being, being president's quite hard. I didn't I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't. Incredible. I, I thought you push this button and you go and do that, and it's not a TV show where you just go do that. You know, he's not. You're not a company boss where you can just go, you, do this, you, out. You can't uh, just say, let's reshoot that bit. No, 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 there's, there's such a thing as, you know, the Constitution and democracy, um, which, which means that you're not, you're not the CEO of the country, you're the servant, you're the chief servant. And especially in, in America, where the Constitution is such that there are checks and balances. So you have executive power with the presidency running all these departments, but you have the budget is in the hands of the House of Representatives. The legislation can only be passed if you get majorities in both houses or uh, 60, 60 out of 100 in the Senate. Um, you've got the courts who can stop legislation if they deem it unconstitutional. You've got all these checks, and then you've got the states who have their own separate rights and their own uh, abilities to enact legislation or to hold some of it back if they want. It's, it's, it's complicated. It's absolutely complicated. And, and to me, well, the, the system is based on things the idea of the, the Founding Fathers and the Constitution was they drew it up that way because they thought it would force people to come to a compromise. No one group would have total power, so both sides would have to come together and find a sort of the middle way. So that only works if those two groups are willing to talk to each other, but what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years is neither one of them want to talk to the other, so you have deadlock and gridlock, and, and that's what you have. You know, you have Obama had the opportunity, he was president for eight years, but he only really had those first two years when he had a majority in, in, in both houses to get his legislation through. The remaining six was really trying to encourage and cajole the public to force these people to get legislation through. So it's a very, very um, different dynamic, really. Since you bring up Donald Trump. Yes. Um, you make it sound like an owl coughing up a pellet. <laughs> 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 um, you're, not, you're not doing Trump, uh, um, VP anymore. You, no. You've, you've abandoned your colleagues. No, I'm sort of relieved I'm not, given what's going on in America. Well, that's sort of what I'm wondering. I mean, because in, in, some, in some sense, there was a way that VP, and the thick of it too, yeah. was kind of um, reflecting or refracting what was going on yeah. in the 
political reality. Yeah. You know. um, how did the, the new series of Veep, which is which is which is in the can, I think now, is it? Or, yes, I think it's transmitting. How that. are they going to do? How are they going to do Trump? I mean, and I don't know whether you can speak as someone who knows or whether it's just as a punter. No, or I I don't know. I don't I have. Mean, you know, I, I I'm not involved in the show anymore, and. Uh, uh, I, I, I mean, the show itself never really, you know, we never said which party she was in. We never really mentioned real politicians by name. Mm. So it was almost like it was an alternative universe going on. Um, we kind of reflected the tone of what was going on in Washington. But, you know, we, we write and shoot the show six months in advance of its transmission. So there's no way we can be yeah. topical in that respect. Yeah. Um, I suspect the show, as it goes on, will reflect the kind of atmosphere that's in Washington now. Um, but I'm, and it's a, great, it's a great problem for all kind of comedians as to how you approach Trump, because, um, you know, satire is, not that I'm not gonna generalize, but I am. Um, <laughs> satire is where you take something that is true and then you exaggerate it and you twist it and you bend it until it becomes absurd. But that's what Trump does anyway. In, <laughs> in every sentence he speaks, he, he contradicts himself. He, he can be talking about, you know, when China was there and I said to him, we've launched the missile over a beautiful piece of chocolate cake, the best chocolate cake you've ever, beautiful. We launched the missiles at uh, Iraq, Syria, Syria, uh, we, you know, you just, we're, we're going to launch them at uh, uh, North Island, North Korea, uh, you know, um, he, he contradicts himself. He's, in, he's his own internal satirical mechanism. Mm. He's a walking, mm. he's a walking punchline, mm. you know. So what do you do? You know, do you just stand back and let him speak? Which you can do. There's a fantastic thing on YouTube called Sassy Trump. Has ever anyone come across? Look up Sassy Trump. It's a guy, it's a British guy, Peter Serovinovich, and what he does is he just gets Donald Trump speaking and revoices him. So the words are the same, they're all Trump speaking but suddenly he's put a sassy voice to it. So this, this bulldog, muscular kind of, yeah, is gone. And it's, uh, because the hand gestures are all quite, so I said, we said, over the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake you ever saw, I said, uh, and it just takes the heat out of Trump. So, <laughs> He never finishes, he, he starts five sentences at once. He starts yeah. Yeah. five sentences. I say Trump because, and I tell, you know, he's just, just shut all those windows down. He's there, got five there, apps going at once there, in, his, there, in his mouth, you know. There are those wonderful transcripts that are coming yeah. to the AP put out and just says unintelligible. Yes. Three lines, unintelligible. I don't know. You know yeah. Sort of the I think they tried, but I think Obama tried bugger, bu bu buggering, bu bugging him. Uh, Useful. There's a story. <laughs> um, <laughs> Obama, he tried to bugger. He tried. No way. Puts, no way. Uh, puts birtherism well, in a whole new view. <laughs> No, I think it's Putin tried tried that. Um, <laughs> no, I think they tried surveillance on him and then just gave up because they just well, this is nonsense. I can't. Guys in the van outside go, I can't take any more of this. <laughs> this is just. You know, I'm going home. Wake me up if something happens. I'm just. This is. What's this? You know. <laughs>
Because it seems, I mean, you touch on this, but it, like going back to the thick of it, yeah. you were lampooning or playing up all this kind of dissembling and euphemism usage and yeah, yeah, yeah. and evasion. Yeah. Yeah. And Trump, in some way, is a response to that kind of, isn't he, to that kind of political yes. rhetoric where you refuse to say anything, and Hillary Clinton arguably isn't. Yes, Trump. that was her downfall in that she was too cautious. You know, Trump said everything and she said nothing. And in the end, people went for the person who said everything, even though it was, you know, mostly appalling. And, and if not appalling, then unintelligible. But he was... Untrue. You know, he was, say, he was saying that, but, and because and he's, he's a salesman. That's what he's good at. He's a good salesman. So he tells you things that you think, I so want this to be true. We're going to build a beautiful wall. It's going to be healthcare. Beautiful prices are going to come down. You'll get. You'll be healthy. Um, you want. You. Why wouldn't you want that? That sounds glorious. You know. I like that car. I'll buy it from that car salesman because he says it's very good, and that's his job. So he would know about that car. He would know a lot. So I'm going to believe him. You know, so so that's that's the thing. And now we're finding out that you know, but he's still saying it. He's still saying, I don't believe in these 100 days. This ah, what have you done in your 100 days? I don't believe it. But I have had the best 100 days of any president since time. You know, since Adam. Since Adam was president, I have. You know, and, uh, and, you know the same. Uh, you know, or. Uh, um, and the other thing he gets away with is saying things that are terrible and untrue, and clearly untrue, and then changing his mind, but changing his mind in such a way that it looks like an act of confidence. So he went around saying, um, Obama is not born in America, he's got to show his birth certificate, and then during the election he said, I am now saying Obama was born in America. I have resolved this debate. <laughs> and he went around saying NATO is obscure. And then last week he said, I used to say NATO is obscure. It's not obscure. <laughs> and you think, yes, I know. <laughs> I know. But you're saying it as if this is some revelation that has only come to you and not to us. Uh, and, and he gets away with it. So. It's interesting that the comedians who are having a uh, an interesting response to Trump mm. are actually the ones who are doing proper journalism about him. Mm. You know, John Oliver and The Daily Show are actually doing their research and, and pulling up the facts. And, and you know, so it's, it's, it's a slight indictment, I think, of, not that I want to sound like Trump, but the mainstream media has still not quite got its act together in how to handle him, really. What do you think they're getting wrong? I think they uh, gave him too much publicity. They saw him as being entertaining. They noticed that their ratings went up whenever they covered live coverage of his speech. He, he didn't have to put much money into his campaign because you know, several people have estimated just the live coverage of his rallies during the election were worth billions in terms of advertising that he didn't have to spend because you know, he's a showman, he's an entertainer. But he also blew apart, didn't he, that kind of consensus thinking that 
the media is all powerful, you know. As it, yes. Well, in the in the world of the thick of it. Yes. I mean, I know it's not just Alistair Campbell, but the Alistair Campbell. Yeah. As you know, that that idea was we've got and we've got to suck up to Murdoch and we've got yeah. to get the story right. And Donald Trump was fuck all the media. And yeah, I yeah, yeah. Just... And also, I think what he's also made him successful is like any successful salesman, he says something that has a grain of truth about it. So when he says it, he's exaggerated it, he's twisted it, he's he's given a different sort of relevance. But there is part of you thinking, yeah, he's kind of onto something. So when he says the media, they're all out to get me, they're all fake news, fake news, you know, the truth is, yes, the, the media is fake. You know, any news item is subjective. You know, if someone's gone out and filmed four hours of a riot, but they've then gone back to the, the, the TV station and they've edited it down to three minutes. So there is someone subjectively going through the rushes of four hours and saying, what are the best bits, the, best, the bits that best illustrate my story? Um, so everything, uh, and then a news editor has decided whether that story is important enough to be the thing that starts the news program, or is it the third item or the fourth item? So, you know, everything is subjective. You know, if you want to, you know, truth, we, we rely on the fact that we think that truth is actually solid and factual and is observable, but actually there's a lot of very subjective opinions mm. around it, how, how it's interpreted, and we're used to those interpretations. And what Trump has very cleverly done is come in and, and, and kind of hold that up to the light. It's that sort of, it's, I mean, it's Colbert, Stephen Colbert has that truthiness idea. Truthiness, yes. Where it's, yes. it feels true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have heard politicians say that, you know, um, John Oliver, uh, his team of researchers dug this out, where, um, who's the idiot who's who Trump's got with him? Not Bannon. Bannon. He, there's so many idiots. Um, he, Miller, no, he's, um, he used to be, uh, he used to run the, he was Speaker of the House. Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich. He was being interviewed talking about crime. He's saying crime has gone up. The figures for crime are sky high. And the reporter said, no, 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 they, they've actually gone down. No, no, people are worried about crime. No, but the figures have gone down. And he said, no, the figures may have gone down, but people think they've gone up. And, <laughs> And that's what is worrying people. They're worried about crime, you know? And it's, where do you go? And, and so this whole fake, and, he's, and the other thing is, he and his team, Bannon and Breitbart, who are fake news, they have, they, they've turned it against their enemies. They've accused their enemies of being fake news. And it is a thing that happens. I remember John Kerry, who, ran for president against George Bush, W. Bush. He was a Vietnamese war hero, and then uh, came home and protested against Vietnam and handed, you know, handed over his medals. But you know, he stood for election as a, on this kind of heroic record. So what did his opponents do? They got together people who said they served with John Kerry and said how he was a coward and he wasn't a hero. So it's that take that thing that is the thing that the opposition see as their best card and then just turn it against them. So. But that seems like a different time. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. That was the, yeah. was that the swift boat thing, I think? Yes, the swift boat. And yeah. there was then, I mean, that kind of status quo of politics was that your past would be 
people would go through your past and you can't have anything and yeah. that's a problem and Hillary Clinton yeah. alert to that and you can't gaff, you can't put a foot wrong. Yes. Trump comes out and says, McCain, John McCain is, a, is, is an asshole, and he's this yeah. great war hero. He says that yeah. things work. Nothing happens. Yes. And so he sort of has disproved all that orthodoxy. In yes. It. Now, I, what we don't know yet is whether he's the exception that proves the rule, and it's only John, Donald Trump that can yeah. do this, or whether he's now given birth to a whole generation of politicians who think, um, oh, I, the way to get elected is to just say whatever you like and make things up mm. and do scandalous things and fart on television and, you know, just, you know, whatever, just assault someone. Mm. Great. Mm. You know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to be a, make a great sci-fi movie, wouldn't it? Just <laughs> politics just gone completely kind of anarchic, you know. It, um... Have a gunfight. The final televised debate is just a <laughs> shoot off or a duel. Bring back dueling. A sort of sword fight in the woods between Hillary Clinton and you know, <laughs> you know that's that's the level it's come to really and I don't know how much it is that um, because we you know talking about news and how we filter you know we are now our own filters for news we sign up to the news that we want to hear and we don't sign up to the news we don't want to hear so you know we get our little uh, uh, links every day of what it is we want to read about. So we become a kind of self-selecting, and we only converse with people who kind of agree with us. And we assume that everyone is like that, whereas in fact, no, these are just your friends that you, you know. And then it becomes a surprise that there's a whole world out there that disagrees with you and has a different opinion. And I think that's kind of what happened. There was a complacency within um, the Democrats and within the Clinton campaign and within the Remain camp in the Brexit debate uh, uh, in the UK that, you know, well, we're sensible people and we're nice and therefore we're kind of right, aren't we? Um, and, and actually, no, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Um, no matter how good you think you are, that doesn't give you um, the automatic right to wield power. You, you, you have to you have to win the argument. And, and I think we've lost that sense of argument now. We, we, we shy away from debating with people who we know will disagree with us. We'd rather stick to a you know, friend and follow those who are like-minded and block and unfollow and not platform anyone who has a different point of view. And I find that a, a kind of worrying trend, really. I want to come back to the, the question of you being personally responsible for Donald Trump and Brexit. Yeah. Um, which, is the, which is the argument that I'm obviously overstating. But is that, that is that... No, it's true. It's true. It's, uh, it's good that we... At, at one point, he's going to go on television tomorrow and just go, only joking. Uh, it never happened. No, but I don't mean that. I don't mean an invention. <laughs> yes. I mean the, the argument that goes that political satire or political... The world, the world conjured up in Veep or the Thicket yeah. is one of kind of venal and Machiavellian yeah. and self-serving people, and it engenders uh, cynicism yes. among the voting yes. public, and it's not all like that. No. There are good people no, absolutely. and that we... I mean, I, two things I'd say about that. One is, especially in the thick of it, I find the most sympathetic character actually the politician, the minister. Mm. That's the one I feel sorry for. And I, I also feel that's the, the human entry point into that world. It's the people who surround her and the media pressure, and indeed the electorate, us expecting them to be perfect. 
and hating it and if they go on holiday or if they've, you know, charged the state for, you know, some dog food that they, they bought, you know. We, they, we want them to be perfect and they're not perfect, they're human. Uh, and we, we dislike them if they show any kind of fallibility. There's that. But also, you know, I did the thick of it and, and in response to what I saw. And the fact is, we would invent the worst stories imaginable. They'd go out and then a politician afterwards would get in touch and say, how did you find that out? Because <laughs> we, we thought we'd cover that up. We thought we'd kept pretty quiet about that. And you, and you think, what, that's true? Um, you know, the number of politicians who quietly have said, if anything, it's far worse in real life. So I don't, I don't buy that at all. And I think it's important that people get an idea of what is really going on. You know, for, I, what I wanted to show in the thick of it was how you think a policy comes out as, as a result of great deliberation and great conversation and listening to you, the electorate, and going away and getting the best minds together and spending weeks on coming up with the best policy and testing it out. And, and I say, no, it comes up in the back of a car, you know, because you're on the way, you're on the way to say something and you've been told, actually, the money you thought you had has been removed from the budget, so you better just announce something that doesn't cost anything. But what are we going to announce? I don't know. And in the very first episode of the Think of It, that happens to the mm. minister. And I said to the team, the, the cast, we had a bit of time left and we were still travelling, I said, just make things up, make some policies up and see what happens. Three of those policies that they came up with in that show then became law. <laughs> <laughs> which was, um, it was asbos for pets, so kind of disciplinary <laughs> things for pets. Social, social. Social orders, orders yeah. for pets. Um, everyone should have their own plastic carrier bag um, <coughs> and uh, a national spare room database, which <laughs> in the UK became a bedroom tax. If you had a third unused bedroom, you would be taxed on it. And again, the number of politicians who have come up to me and said, I've been in the back of that car, you know. It, 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 so, uh, unfortunately, it's true. Now, yes, people go into politics because they want to do good. You know, I fundamentally believe that people, the, the majority of politicians go in because they feel they can contribute something, they've got ideas, they want to affect change, they want to improve things. And, and I absolutely buy that. But a comedy show about a minister just getting on with their work would not be a great comedy show. <laughs> it would be tedious to watch. So, you know, you've got to allow an element of, you know, entertainment. Um, but what I've tried to do as much as possible is make that entertainment reflective of the environment, you know, the, 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 the basic themes and the undercurrents of that environment that actually do go on. So I wouldn't, I haven't yet had a politician come out and say, none of this is true. Mm. Politics is not like that at all. Um, you talked about um, John Stewart yeah. before and, and John Oliver, yeah. and, um, and uh, notwithstanding the risk of nuclear apocalypse that comes with Trump, 
It has been. Uh, <laughs> Everyone's buying real estate here. That's right. All the Silicon yeah. Valley billionaires are getting the hell out. I was inquiring about how much it cost to buy a house in Queenstown before, <laughs> before we came on. It's very troubling. But the, it is sort of, in, in some ways, it, it could be a golden age for, for political yes. satire. I mean, you look yes. at Private Eye, the yeah, UK yeah, yeah. historical magazine, has a record sales. Absolutely, yeah. You know, there's, there's, and there's, the viewing there's, figures for Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live is good again, mean, yeah. you know, for the first yeah, time yeah, I can yeah. remember. Well, I think it's forcing us to think. You know, it's, it, I, I always thought it was very lazy just to do an impression and to make politicians these cuddly caricatures, because I think that's giving them an easy way out. It's, it's letting them become like household toys, really, and I think they've got to be held to account. So if it's forcing comedians to just think a bit harder about how we're going to portray this, so how, what, what the issue is that we're going to demonstrate here, rather than just the funny mannerism, then, then that's great. And, and like I said, I think that's why the sharpest comedy is the comedy that has the resources of researchers and a sort of journalistic uh, intent behind it. Um, I mean, but you've always got to, sorry, to, I, I, but there is that marker though that you've just got to bear in mind that comedy doesn't change anything though. It won't, yeah. it won't affect the election. Um, uh, Peter Cook always talked about, you know, the wonderful uh, cabaret that went on in Weimar, Germany in the 1930s that did so much to stop the rise of Nazism. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it may, it may help articulate something that you felt, it may express something in a dramatic form or a comic form that you've been, you know, it may illustrate or illuminate, but it doesn't, it doesn't win or lose elections. Does it also have a function of kind of uh, just the very fact of it proves something in a democracy? I mean, like tomorrow, yes. tomorrow is the, um, what's it called, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yes. And Donald Trump isn't turning out. It's not going. For the first time, first one for a long time. And it struck me thinking about that. Because he doesn't do jokes that in, well. In a way, it doesn't matter. In a yeah. way, it's trivial. But in a yes. way, also, it is the sign of a mature democracy yeah. that a politician can go and say, Bring it on, take the piss. Yeah. That is it's like a kind of symbol of freedom or something. Is that overstating it? No, no, no. And I mean, in the UK, there's always been a satirical tradition, right from, you know, George III, really, the mm. Hogarth and his drawings and, uh, and Charles Dickens. And, and um, you know, so there always has been that tradition. In, in, in Britain, we, you know, we, we don't really have revolutions. We have, we have comedy instead. <laughs> you know, we, we have satire. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, but, I mean, Trump, Trump thinks he's funny, but he's not funny, and he doesn't like jokes about himself. So you could see why he wasn't going to go to the correspondence dinner, because it was going to be jokes about himself, followed by him trying to be funny back. And, you know, Obama did it so well that uh, Trump would rather be at home paying someone to piss on a bed. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so funny, he was giving this interview saying how tough it is being president. You can't go out. You can't go out. I love going out. I thought, yeah, I know what you're going out for. So, uh, I hope you've got, got the presidential suite. Yes. Books. Yes. <laughs> He's bussing them in, I think. Um. <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, it doesn't. It's not changing anything. It's not not, no. not, not a huge. But no. but there is sort of to your work. There is is there a kind of still a moral component to it? I mean, David Schneider, who's one, someone you've worked with, yeah. described you as being fueled by a quiet moral rage. Yeah. And Sarah Sands, who's your editor at the Sunday Telegraph or somewhere, yeah. said that you're almost priest-like. You know. And there, I mean, is there is there some truth in that? Do you have a? Is there a kind of a moral priest-like? Well, I, I was Catholic upbringing, I suppose. <laughs> um, and uh, I, 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 well, there is a bit, I suppose. You know, I, I, I don't want to be moralistic in terms of this is right and this is wrong, and you shouldn't do this. And you know, I, I mean, I think it's important we accept that people are fallible. It, you know, if anything, I, I, I don't like accusing a politician of being a hypocrite because they said this and they've gone and done that. I, I'm very uninterested in politic, politician sex scandals and, uh, you know, I just, I just find, I, I'm interested in what they do. It's when they do something that I disagree with and, and where I could see they've tried to pull the wool over our eyes. That's when I get annoyed. And, and I suppose the best way I can channel that annoyance is into making something. Mm. So really something like The Thick of It was really born out of watching Tony Blair take Britain with America into Iraq when everyone was telling him, this is mad, this is mad. And, and him trying to moralize about it, saying it was the right thing to do. I remember him afterwards explaining to his party conference, you know, when there had been no weapons of mass destruction found, him trying to justify it, saying, you know, knowledge isn't the same as faith. Um, I only know what I believe, you know. And I thought, that sounds good. But then when you analyze it, you think, no, 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 that's the exact opposite of how we've conducted ourselves for 3,000 years, which is you go out and you establish facts. And on the basis of the facts that you've assembled, you come up with a viewpoint, you know, you interpret the facts. He's talking about having uh, a, a vision and that the vision is actually to him more real than factual evidence. Um, and that was his justification for going into Iraq. You know, I believed it was the right thing to do. I believed Saddam was gonna do this. Um, I believed if we didn't stop him, there'd be hell on earth. Um, and I found that worrying, but it's a, you know, it's a trend that, and, and this takes us, you know, Trump is part of that trend. He's selling, he's selling a vision of a sort of faith. He is a cult, actually. He's a cult leader. Um, so if you disagree with Donald Trump, you are part of the, the mass forces of hypocrisy and liberalism that are out to rig, rig the system. He believes the system's rigged which is a great get out because if things don't go right, it's because the system's rigged. You know, if, he, if the economy doesn't turn, it's because people have rigged the system and the media have, down, have, have talked the economy down. So he's, you know, he, he, he's there in his head, he's given himself a job for life. Um, he's not far off North Korea because North Korea is a job for life, cult leader, whether surrounded by his own family in senior positions, you know. So where's the difference? Um, yeah, who, who, who both have lots of missiles um, that they can fling at each other. 
and, and, and he is cult leader. And a, a journalist uh, I spoke to in, in the UK who had just who'd done a documentary both on Scientology and on Donald Trump was telling me about the similarities in that there is this. He, the, he said when Trump was in Trump Tower uh, in New York, he was on whatever it was, the 55th floor, and his children. I mean, they're all growing up, obviously. Their offices were on the floor underneath them. And when they talked about their father, they just went. <laughs> like, it was like God. It was like, because he was, you know. And, and he said he, he found this, the similarities stri striking. And the, the people he surrounds himself with are, uh, you know, the Trump adorers. And everything he says is brilliant and amazing and true. And, and in their heads, yes, he has had the most successful 100 days of any president because he is who he is. And it's just great that he's been in power for 100 days. And that in itself is almost by definition better than any other president who's ever in that, been in that office because they haven't been Donald Trump. But he's been Donald Trump and he's Donald Trump every day. So it's just going to get better and better. And if the economy, you know, goes down the pan, they'll just say the economy is wonderful, you know, and, and, and those who tell you otherwise are, are naysayers and, you know, that's, that's how it'll be. So we'll just get sucked into it. It's like the Matrix, that's what I'm saying. It's like the Matrix. <laughs> I'm exaggerating for comic effect, but... Um, only a little bit. But only a little bit, yeah. I was thinking um, in terms of that, that this kind of moral question about there's, there's one particular part in the thick of it towards the end of the last series and it's yeah. the it's Golding Inquiry. It's yes. sort of a bit like the Leveson Inquiry. Yeah. A bit like the, and, and, and Malcolm Tucker is before the inquiry the panel. Yes. and uh, he sort of starts to kind of break down a little bit. Yes. And then he gives this speech at the end and he says, you don't blame me. Yeah. You're to blame. It's an inquiry into leaking, government leaking. When he says, yeah. don't, don't blame me. So I'm, I'm a product of you. Yeah. Uh, I am you and you are me. And it's sort of, it's kind of, yeah. it's an amazing, yeah. very serious moment. Yeah. It's sort of no swearing. Bit, no swearing, because he's up in front of a, a televised live judicial hearing, so he can resort to, to those tactics. Yeah. But it felt like we, we were being spoken to directly, like, yeah. you know, the, the, by the author. Is that what, is that what happened, or is, was that... Well, it, it's a, a bit of that, and, and what I actually did, because I'm kind of very interested in how trying to persuade, trying to portray how we really speak in, in a dramatised form. We don't speak in neat sense. I mean, I, I mentioned Trump with his five sentences on the go at once, but we're like that. We don't finish our sentences. We talk all over each other and so on. And I thought... He's got to do this kind of summing up at the end. But actually, in real life, it wouldn't be as logically coherent as it would be if one person wrote it down. So I actually got three or four writers to write separate speeches. Mm. And then I, then I just I did a kind of montage of sentences from each version mm. of the speech so that it sort of made sense but also had a few non sequiturs in it and a few sudden changes of of thought because um, i i wanted to try and create that sense of a person cornered and trying to summon all their skills to articulate what it is they're feeling but at the same time showing the the cracks in it because you do these. Th I mean, I read somewhere as well that you would sometimes add a bit of add a page to someone's script 
on the day of shooting. Yes. To yes. Give I'd, them a bit of a fright. Is that is that a sort yeah, of yeah yeah or or, or or I'd sometimes once we've done the scene a few times I'd go up to one of the actors and say actually at the end of that why don't you say this just to see what happens you know because um, I just like capturing that you know actors you know acting brilliantly but they're acting so brilliantly that it doesn't look like acting. You know, Gene Kelly has that thing of, mm. you know, if it looks like it's hard work, then you're not working hard enough. Um, you know, really pushing it to get it to a level where it doesn't feel like these are actors saying things that are written down on a page. That, that, but it, and what I normally do with someone like think of it is we shoot the scene, but then I say, okay, let's do it again, but kind of do it your own way, but make sure obviously we say the relevant bits of information. And nine times out of 10, it's the same scene again, but the words have just come out in ever so slightly different order. That's all. Um, and they've come out in a slightly more natural sounding order. You know? So there's not much invention. It's just a, a kind of naturalization of it, really. I want to throw to questions in, in a second, yeah. but I just wanted to ask you uh, briefly about your new project, which is called The Death of Stalin. The Death of Stalin, yes. Is that, is that, a, is that, a, is that serious? I mean, I mean uh, uh, Steve Coogan has said before, uh, Stephen Coogan, who plays yeah. Alan Partridge, who you worked with yeah. for a long time, he's interested in sort of interested in serious things now, but yeah. isn't he? Is that where you're going to? No, I mean, the death of Stalin, you know, uh, which, and the clue is in the title, is about the death of Stalin, um, is funny. I call it a tragic comedy. Mm. Um, a lot of it is based on true. It's, it's the events surrounding Stalin has a stroke. Um, two days later, he dies. There's a power struggle in the Kremlin. Stalin and his right-hand man, Beria, have been imposing this terror on an entire empire for 20 years. So what happens when the chief terrorizer is gone uh, and there's a power struggle that's going on? So, it, uh, but it, it's funny, there's elements of farce, but the farce is all based on truth, lots of true. The film opens with a thing that happened, which was, it opens with a concert, uh, orchestral concert, Mozart Piano Concerto, Radio Moscow, um, as the concert's playing, a phone call goes off in the booth at the back, the engineer, he picks it up. This is Stalin, I'm enjoying the concert, can I have a recording of it uh, prepared and I'll send someone to pick it up. Puts the phone down, engineer turns to the other engineer and says, are we recording this? And the guy goes, no, it's going out live. And they go, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God. Okay, 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 okay. And he just runs out and shouts, stop, nobody move, shut the doors, shut the doors. Everyone thinks, oh my God, are we being rounded up? You know, we're going to do this concert again for Stalin. Everyone applauds. No one wants to be the first to stop applauding, so the applause goes on. For... Um, the pianist says, I'm not going to do it. He shot my family, he shot my brother, I'm not going to do it. They have to sit her down and practically give a fortune to her, mm. which she then um, donates to the church. Meanwhile, the conductor is just so shit scared, he uh, faints and bangs his head against the wall and knocks himself unconscious. So they then have to scour Moscow to find another conductor. <laughs> now, in reality, they actually got through two more conductors because they found a second conductor, but he was drunk. So they had to go out and get a third conductor, but I didn't do that in the film because I just thought people just won't believe it. <laughs> So they get the third conductor, the third conductor turns up in his pajamas and dressing gown and, and conducts it and they put on vinyl and sent to Stalin. But meanwhile, the pianist slipped a note in saying how much she hates Stalin and that gets to him. 
So it's, it's things like that, things like Stalin told his guards he never wanted to be interrupted, they mustn't knock on the door. So when he has a stroke and collapses, he's just left lying in his office for a day in a pool of his own urine because the guards on the door are too scared to, to, you know, so it's that thing of how someone who's terrorized the nation has that terror actually come back and kill him and then the power struggle that goes on after it. So, you know, you're all laughing at all this, but it's true. And that's what the film is. It's doing this sort of tightrope high wire act between stuff that is funny, but also, but here are the consequences, you know. So for me, it was taking me out of my comfort zone and it wasn't an out and out comedy. Um, it was also a period piece, which I've never done before. And we went to Moscow and looked around the Kremlin and Stalin's Dacha and, and to get the look right. And, and then it was, it, it, it was also filming on a slightly grander scale. I mean, it's not, it's not Dr. Zhivago, it's not a cast of thousands, but you know, it's the streets of Moscow, there are riots, there's a funeral, there's processions, there's Red Square, there are speeches, there's, um, and, and behind it all are just these kind of thugs, really, who were running the Soviet Union and they're all out to see who's the, going to be the last one standing when the music stops. It's been a whole lot of fun. Thank you very much. Oh, fun you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.